This week, we're happy to be featured on the front page of the Stitcher platform for podcasts. Listeners, please add us to your favorites and look out for a new conversation about arts, ideas, and politics every week. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Neoliberalism is the buzzword of our era. It's a word with no definitions, but lots of associations like Too Big to Fail, TED Talks, Smartphones, GPS, places like Davos and Martha's Vineyard. Neoliberalism is code for an information boom at the top and a bust of lost jobs, debt, and resentment at the bottom. It was the flat earth of trade and technology. It was the end of history, then the rush from meritocracy to plutocracy. In national politics, neoliberalism means oceans of campaign money and Wall Streeters on the first team in every White House. It means the gig economy of Uber and TaskRabbits. Also, Netflix, Spotify, and unlimited entertainment for $30 a month for the rest of your life. It's Airbnb, the TPP, and maybe HRC. Or is it over? And here is this year's version of the giant sucking sound Ross Perot's warning back in 1992 about manufacturing jobs heading south. This time, it's the Carrier Air Conditioning Company telling their Indianapolis workforce two months ago that their plant is on its way to Mexico. It became clear that the best way to stay competitive and protect the business for long term is to move production from our facility in Indianapolis to Monterey, Mexico. Listen, we've got, I've got information that's important to share. If you don't want to hear it, other people do. So let's quiet down. Thank you very much. The question is what to make of one lost factory in Indiana and whether you would believe a man who said it's the kernel of cosmic crisis and not Donald Trump, though he rages against trade deals and not Bernie Sanders, who blames the billionaires for stripping the land of good work. It's our guest, Paul Mason, who sums up the discontents of our time in a single diagnosis. Neoliberalism is the disease with a single remedy that he calls post-capitalism. We don't have a Paul Mason in this country, a scorching TV newsman on Channel 4 in England, a music major in college who has since then mastered the details of economics and an awful lot of history. Week to week, we talk symptoms of the info economy and the broken workplace, the $5 Primark t-shirt, and all the world's music on your phone. This week, we're taking a stab at a big picture and a prescription. Paul Mason, welcome. You've come a long way for a conversation. We thank you. Consider all the points of distress out there in the news, in our conversation, global warming to terrorism to migration to slow growth, which ones tell the story for all time? Well, thanks for inviting me. And and for me as a working journalist, uh, working in TV news for 15, 16 years now, 
I've noticed there have been two basic stories, the good story and the bad story. Mm. So, so you can spend a lot of time talking about new innovations in technology, uh, DNA sequencing, uh, new microprocessors, the AlphaGo, DeepMind's conquest of, um, of, of the Go game that happened in March. And then alongside it, you get the bad news story, which is primarily for me economic. It is an economic system that doesn't work. I call it neoliberalism. And what I mean by that is the whole global system. So not just the, uh, the radical right-wing economics of, uh, of Reagan's America and, and Margaret Thatcher's Britain, but also the countries who take the other side of that deal, the Germany's, mm. the Japan's. The whole global system we've got is stagnating, and yet we have... Uh, self-driving cars on the way. We have a computer that can play Go. My book and my thesis unites the two. It basically says that the, that the information revolution we're living through is a stunning and amazing thing, but there may not be any value understood economically at the end of the rainbow. There's no pot of gold. Uh, and in other words, the markets are not just sending us a signal that, hey, there are things structurally wrong with, the, with you know, like we heard there, the offshoring of a plant uh, from, from Indianapolis. There's, there are things structurally wrong with the present economy. I think the markets mm. are telling us that the future is going to be very troublesome because of the technology. The markets, you say, but I'm thinking of the din and the excitement, the... I don't know, the dread, the, the beauty of the American political campaign, the, the <laughs> no's are, are, are winning. I mean, if, if, you, if you combine, as I often do in my head, the, the Trump no to global trade and the Sanders no to you know, the billionaire uh, domination of our world, uh, hasn't that story sort of taken... Well, look, look what, what unites the two... Uh I don't going to call them extremes. I don't think Sanders is extreme. I think Sanders is incredibly normal and sensible. But what what unites these two ends of American politics, unorthodox ends of American politics, is a sense that the system we had for the last thirty years is broken, and that's essentially what I'm saying. Now, the the solution to it is either in the book I say either we're going to end up deglobalizing the world mm. because if you if you have stagnation year in year in year out from the 1930s what we know is that at some point a country decides to head for the exit of globalization of the mm. global system as it was then um, and usually the people who head for the exit first uh, recover first. That's what happened in the early 1930s. It was because here Hoover delayed uh, breaking with the global system that you had the deepest depression in America. Now, you know, either we break up globalization, this is what Trump's basically arguing about, or we find a solution that saves globalization. And I think saving globalization means ditching the free market economics that we seem to believe is fundamental and can't be and can never be superseded. Can I say the Greek crisis is much closer to your heart and mind, your coverage, than it is to most of ours. But why did that surprise us so? First, that the, the, the left rose up, and then second, that the, the, the bankers and the Germans crushed them. Well, the left went from 4%, and we're talking the radical left, the Marxist left, went from 4% to 36% and stayed at 36% and governs still the country to this day because the centre collapsed, because the centre signed up to an economic programme that meant the destruction of your own economy 
and one party after it. I mean, even, you know, even the Trump of Greece signed up to the austerity. There was a small right-wing party, very like mm. Trump, the Trump wing of the GOP, signed up to it. And they were destroyed as well. The left simply said, we, you know, we're going to resist austerity. Um, they resisted it. And, you know, your, your listeners may know that, that in July 2015, the European Union, led by Germany, uh, crushed them. They basically, I was there, it felt like... I've, I've been in wars, yeah? I've been under bombardments. And the level of uh, psychological distress among ordinary mm. people at not being able to get into your own bank account and not knowing whether the baby milk factory will stay open mm. was so great that it felt a bit like being under bombardment. Yeah. People remembered the Nazi flag over the Parthenon, I mean, <laughs> back in... I mean, as I, yeah, as I you know, pointed out very early on in reporting this story, it, it became a major theme for my reporting that, that you know, I'm, I've met in my life, you know, in, in my visits to Greece, many people who are veterans of the Nazi occupation. You, you, you only have to be in your mid to late 70s to remember it. It was an awful time. And the idea that a country that, you know, that got itself debt relief, Germany at the end of the, of the war got debt relief, right. suddenly doesn't allow debt relief to Greece. Well, you can imagine how that plays because these folks are only agricultural, uh, you know, olive growers that, you know, they, they're not relying on a PhD in, in, in political science. They're relying on their experience. And their experience is saying to them, they're trying to crush us. But so what's the lesson for us and for the world between the confrontation of bankers and and people in Greece? Well, I think the interesting le- lesson from Greece for me was that a radical left politics can work. Now, you know, they, they, had to, they, they were defeated, they retreated, a lot of people threw in their party membership cards. They still run Greece. Uh, and, and they are semi-competently, as all governments are only semi-competent, uh, running it. I think the lesson is that that I'll tell you what I think. I think Sanders could work. I think uh, in Britain we have a, a Sanders-like person leading our Labour Party. Jeremy uh, I think Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. He could work. And, and you know, if you read the newspapers, it's almost a sort of British newspapers see Corbyn as a kind of threat to national security and antichrist. But I, I think the lesson of Greece is that what's emerging is not actually kind of radical Marxism. It's a reinvention of this of what we used to call social democracy, the the, the, the the democratic left. It's a reinvention of the democratic left around economics that are non free market. We're getting used to thinking of this as a forty year history in the United States, from late Jimmy Carter, but it's it's the history of many different things, mm. including intervention in the Middle East, stagnant wages, uh, all sorts of stuff, rising inequality crowned by the Panama Papers of, you know, maybe a trillion dollars in offshore, uh, either corrupt money or hidden I mean, tax-free one, one profits. estimate says $21 trillion, doesn't it? I mean, it's, this, it's, it's almost, you know, it's all a third of the world's GDP. <laughs> it's, it's beyond belief. But is it leading, is there a pattern here? Is it leading to a breaking point? Well, look, what, what we had is a system where, I mean, for me, the the flaws in the system, the flaws in the neoliberal economic model are you you suppress organized labor so it can't resist. When it does resist or you move it offshore to Mexico, as we just heard there, um, you what happens is that you get, as we know in America, stagnant wages, stagnant male median manual wages for 20, 30 years. Now, growth in that situation can only come through 
credit through people borrowing. So, you know, the payday loan store uh, replaces the, the, the mom and pop store. And um, the end result is boom and bust. Boom and bust cycles, of which we're in the third one right now, uh, do not come uh, without a cost. I mean, the, it, the first one wipes out the company pension scheme, the dot-com boom. The second one, the subprime, has wiped out large parts of the welfare state in the world. I think the third one will is where, as in Cyprus, they will reach into your bank account and they will take your savings. The, these things uh, cost us dearly as a society, and we tolerate them. Give us bold strokes quickly about the other parts of this interconnected world, the rise, the emergence of the United States as the sole superpower, hyperpower, the post-Nixon, post-Cold War politics, including the tremendous devaluation of politics, the disbelief in, in the games we're playing. Well, look, uh, you know, my, my book and my analysis is primarily economic. And I think, you know, uh, all of us economists learn not even to read off economic conclusions, let alone political conclusions. So, so let, me, let me be tentative and just say that I think that, you know, the actual apogee of the USA as, a, as an undisputed hyperpower was a very short period. I mean, look at it now. It's turning in on itself. Um, the, its Republican Party, I, I think, can probably never rule in its, in its current form. And that's a strange thing to be saying after, you know, 150 years you know, of, of, of bipartisan politics. Um, the, the, the sickness is that, that you have created the the most neoliberal economy in the world. And, mm. and you know, to, it's not just me with my kind of antennae arriving on the plane and watching American <laughs> TV. You know, I mean, my afternoon of watching American TV has pushed me probably several several uh, phases to the right in politics Listen, we, we sim- we simply by watching it all. I mean, <laughs> we rely on you Martians coming hither and, and explaining what the I know the difference the between a, gun, a, a pistol and a revolver. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's... The, the problem is, is you have you have you've marketized everything. No, the and problem the po- is we've got to take a quick break here. Paul Mason is our guest. His book is Post Capitalism. Coming up, an all-American take on neoliberalism from inside the Bill Clinton White House and inside MIT's workshop on the digital future. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Somewhere between neoliberalism and post capitalism. In American political coverage and conversation, it's an ingrained habit not to see campaigns as extensions of economic warfare or the big no-no class warfare, but the crass interests do surface eventually. Bill Curry was a White House counselor in Bill Clinton's first term, an aspiring Democratic politician with hopes for high office in Connecticut. He told us this week about his own hindsight on the working definition of neoliberalism, which is to say, in the late 1990s, Bill Clinton famously triangulating between Democratic and Republican agendas with the Wall Street banker Robert Rubin at his side. This is a bipartisan consensus at the elite level, I believe, and it includes fiscal austerity. It is for deregulation of not just finance, but airlines, trucking, communications, every single sector of the economy. It is for globalization. It is for unfettered world trade. Above all, it believes in pay-to-play politics. The cornerstone of neoliberalism is really political corruption. Mm. That's what the system runs on. Most importantly, you have campaign contributions directly to candidates. Now you have, as almost everyone knows, every conceivable form of institution, dark money, super PACs, etc., all pouring money into politics 
at a rate that certainly exceeds anything we saw in the 20th century and probably even the Gilded Age. And everyone thinks it's okay. It's the speaking fees of which the Clintons took $153 million since uh, leaving the White House. It's the private jets. It's the corporate consultancies. And so you put all of this together when you see how people are just swimming in money at the top of American politics. That is the single most important explanation for the rise of neoliberalism. The writer Tom Frank of What's the Matter with Kansas says Clintonism is as good a definition of this as neoliberalism. Is that fair? Tom doesn't mean it as a compliment, but I don't think the Clintons would take it as an insult. (laughs) Explain that. If you would take a speech by Bill Clinton and a speech by Newt Gingrich on information technology, on globalization, on this new economy, and compare them, I would challenge anyone to see any difference at all in how they saw it. Hmm. They weren't trying to reform this revolution. They were just cheerleading it. They thought it really was going to be the answer. No industrial transformation, no economic transformation has ever had such an uncritical press as the information technology and communications revolutions had. And if anybody back then thought that as a result anybody was going to lose a job or have their wages repressed or sacrifice their privacy or any of the things we've come to see, in the 1990s you could hardly find someone to say it. No one really understood that this deregulation meant the rape and plunder of the public sector for an entire generation. The one thing I'll say in defense of the people who built this was that a lot of what they were doing they didn't understand at the time. The politicians? Yes. The business people knew exactly what they were doing. But, you know, the politicians, they knew this was good for fundraising. They knew that it was convenient. And they knew that there was an uncritical appetite for all of it out there. Bill Carr, you were there with President Bill Clinton. Speak of the new Clinton, the next Clinton, maybe. How would you know that Hillary Clinton is a neoliberal? How do you read through the buzzwords to policy, to reality? I want to be very clear. I think this is a diligent, honest woman. I think that the question here is about judgment. And the question is about the sense of public ethics. Hillary basically feels what most of the neoliberal elite of my party who took this party over, who very consciously and avowedly began an assault on the Roosevelt coalition. They replaced it with cultural politics, identity politics, and most of all with a neoliberal economic worldview. They don't see that they are ideologues. The reason that I think that Secretary Clinton is not the right person for us to nominate is that she's the living avatar of both neoliberal economics and pay-to-play politics with her husband and with a whole set of other well-intentioned people in the 80s and 90s. They built this system, and the system's killing us. She's in a habit now. It's awkward, Bill, but she repeatedly says the fact that she takes huge sums from Goldman Sachs and others in Wall Street doesn't mean she has to vote their way. Yes. People who think that you can raise money on Wall Street in the morning and champion the middle class in the afternoon are like people who think you can smoke crack all day and be good parents at night. Mm. That's what this government is in the eyes of its people right now. The broad middle class, left, right, and middle, they all get it, and the elites don't. And the reason they don't could hardly be more obvious. They've been so richly rewarded not to see the issue. And in Clinton's case... I don't want to make a personal judgment. 
But it isn't just her. Again, I, I look at my entire party. I, I was born into a family who believed if you didn't vote Democratic, you couldn't be buried in the Catholic Church. You know, I've, I've been a part of this party all my life. I still believe that in its glory days, it was a tribune for the dispossessed and for working people, and I, I hope it can be again. But it stopped doing that. President Obama has lately said that the Republican Party created Donald Trump. It's partly true. So did we. When we didn't raise the minimum wage in 2009, when we had the votes in both houses and chose not to introduce the bill, when the president ran on bailing out all the 18 million homeowners who'd been taken in by the banks and lost all the equity in their houses and then decided not to do it, when the president withdrew the public option, even after the House passed it and we had 53 public votes in the Senate, this was our party at its highest level turning away from the economic commitment that had been the hallmark of this party from its founding in the early 19th century to the great society. And how do they get there? You do all that fundraising, you hang around with all those people, you depend so much on the money. It's not that you sell your vote, it's that you start to think that way. That was Bill Curry in Connecticut, a Democrat of the old school. The Tom Frank, incidentally, in my question, is the critic who wrote What's the Matter with Kansas and recently Listen Liberal. Briefly, Paul Mason, I mean, can you imagine a half an hour with Secretary Clinton? Could you shake her mindset, or, or President Obama's for that matter, the, about how we're doing, that we're on a steady course of recovery, rebuilding? Well, the American recovery was... was was engineered by the Federal Reserve and and by America doing it early and bailing out the banks effectively uh, with state money. Um, you won the the global recovery. Other people like the Europeans lost it. But if I was if I had one minute with Secretary Clinton, it would it would basically be to ask questions because you know there is a huge bandwagon now for um, not only not only around Sanders but around people like Elizabeth Warren inside the Democrats who want a break from free market economics. So yeah, take the money from Goldman Sachs, do the after-dinner speeches, but what are you going to do to, to, to satisfy this new urge for a break that, that brings, in other words, the industry back from Mexico to Indiana? Uh, what are you going to do to do that? And I think a lot of people are going to be incredibly disappointed, and you may find after the election, on both sides of politics, this huge disappointment leads mm. to a cataclysmic institutional reorganization that you can't even imagine yet. Don't go away. Paul Mason... Welcome back, meantime, to our studio, to Andy McAfee from the ongoing MIT project on the digital economy. He's the co-author of a strikingly different take, certainly in spirit, on the bounty of brilliant technologies. More of everything was the forecast at lower prices. That book got a warm embrace, Andy, two years ago. The second machine age, the first one being the steam engine in the 18th century and the Industrial Revolution. How different is your perspective today, from two years ago, but especially from, from Paul's vision. Yeah, and first of all, Chris, thank you for having me back on the show. It's a pleasure to be here and to listen to viewpoints as, as provocative as Paul's. I was taking some notes while he was talking, and he said a couple things that I really found striking. Uh, one of them is that we need to ditch free market economics. And I can't define neoliberalism. I don't have a great working mm. definition for that. I've got a decent working definition for free market economics. And by that, I mean the fact that in economies like America, most of the goods and services all of us consume are produced by profit-seeking companies 
vying for our business and not directly owned or controlled by the government. Like that's, that's my decent short working definition of free market economics. That is working strikingly well. We have tried a couple alternatives to it. They were miserable, abject failures. So when I hear- What are you thinking about? Uh, totalitarian communism, uh, different flavors of socialism, every government intervention in producing goods and services for all of us, it, we've run that experiment. It's a deeply, deeply bad idea. So when I hear people talk about ditching free market economics, even when there's a lot of insight about some of the things that are going wrong in different places today, I get really nervous very quickly. What signals of distress do you take seriously out there? today? The signals of distress are the fact that, as you both have said, wages for the classic American middle class and the classic middle class in most rich countries have been stagnating. Household incomes are actually not going up and they've been flatlining for a while. That is a real problem. What are the sources of that problem? And there's a huge debate about this. Bill Curry, who we just listened to, says that it's because the system has been hijacked. And we hear that a lot these days. Let me give you a couple other tectonic forces that have been Mm -hmm. reshaping wages and incomes and economies for the past 20, 25 years. They are trade and technological progress. And I don't think anybody knows how how to apportion out the blame across those different tectonic forces. But I think trade and tech progress are sufficient to explain why even as the global economy grows... And even as technological progress progress takes us into this fantastic era, there are people being left behind in their capacity as folk who want to offer their labor to the economy. That's actually going on. We need to be concerned about that. What would you say to Hillary Clinton about her mindset in, in the sense of how would you want to tune it? How would you want to tell her politely that the under 35s are all against her, that people don't see a future in her vision? You know, is it the great kids Chir- don't? Is it the great Churchill quote that you shouldn't trust anyone under thirty who's a conservative or over thirty who's a liberal? Uh, I, I'm butchering the words, but it's something like that. Uh, I would tell Hillary Clinton that the, the the real focus should be on that stagnation right there in the classic middle. And what do we need to do about that? Let's have an earnest policy discussion about that. Let's not again turn toward the kinds of economic experiments that we know don't work very well, that, that have to do with just transferring wealth around without trying to grow aggregate wealth, and with trying to be too heavy-handed with government intervention into free market economics. I, I want to say this one final time. Sure. We have run that experiment. It's a deeply, deeply bad idea. We also ran an experiment, even that I grew up in in this country, of n- nobody I knew came out of college with big debts. Uh, there were there were lots. It was a, an expanding economy in the '60s, into the '70s, um, and lots of public supports in in in, in a long term way. Couldn't we get halfway back to that? And I think we can, and I think we should. Even my most ardent free market economist friends think there is room for a social safety net and a tax and transfer system. Absolutely. And I think we are doing it wrong and too stingily in America in some ways. That doesn't mean that we need to lurch too far in the other direction and run a, a another socialist experiment. But we've heard you before, Andy, uh, on, on investment in, in public infrastructure, uh, big time. We, we're falling so far behind, we, we, we kind of imagine what the Germans you know, take for granted also in public higher education, the Chinese too. I mean, they have built hundreds of miles now of subway systems. We're struggling to build 
what, a three-mile extension in the Green Line mm. for how many years now? Uh, we, we've lost sight of all of those public goods, those common sure. enterprises. And I think, Chris, like I've said to you before on this show, I've got to go really, really, really far to the right before I find an economist colleague who doesn't believe that a proper role of the government is to supply infrastructure. And we're doing a lousy job of that. The most recent grade America got from the Society of Civil Engineers was in 2013, I believe. We got a D plus. Of course we should fix that problem. It's an investment in the future. We, I asked you both to speak to Larry Summers' warning, and it's out there in a general way among other economists that, that, that the growth era is over, that we're facing stagnation even in this digitizing economy in a serious way. Paul? Well, look, let, let me just, just respond to this thing and let me make clear about the state role. I mean, I'm, uh, one of the reasons I wrote my book is, is, is to try and arm these social movements that we see on the streets, like the Occupy movement, like the Indignados in, 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 in Europe, uh, with, a, with a plan and with a project that is not the old socialism. Because, because I, I don't think that, uh, even though you know, I live in a society where there's a much greater amount of state involvement um, and, and it's not uh, catastrophic, uh, it wouldn't kill you, um, to, to have a national health system, which was, <laughs> was walk into say. a hospital for free and get treated by world-class uh, medics. But that's not the answer either for me. I mean, the answer, the answer for me, the new thing and the interesting thing lies in the non-market sector. So it's, it is the Wikipedias, it's the Linux, it's the Apache, it's Ruby on Rails. It's things that are being produced for free by a bunch of people who voluntarily do things. I see in that the, the, both the dynamism. And this is why I actually, there's another famous economist, Robert Gordon, who is the doyen yes. of, of stagnation theory. I, I, I don't agree with the stagnationists because I think both that, that they're wrong that the tech revolution is over and that they're, they're actually wrong that there's no, there's no fix economically to the stagnation. It is raise wages. It is, is raise wages, raise the social wage, which I'm afraid does mean having a state sector to provide education, college education, etc. And it's used monetary policy in a way that's pro the population. So this is quantitative easing instead of pro the banks. You can do a lot with that uh, that would make the revival feel much better. And a lot of these people in these rallies a lot less angry. Paul, help, help me understand how the people who are doing Wikipedia Andy editing... Andy please. ...who are doing Wikipedia editing all day... Uh, pay for their groceries and pay their mortgage. Okay, they, they have a job in the private sector or a public sector. Then you're not talking about ditching free market economics. No, I, I'm to, I am talking about take, ditching the ideology that constantly pushes, uh, for example, constantly pushes assets and businesses from the public sector to the private sector. So, you know, the source of, a, of what we see as a kind of vibrant private sector is the state handing the private sector free assets that they then, of course, can make profit out of. The, I would say, I would say that, you know, the what is going on with Wikipedia or, or say somebody who's, who's contributing to Linux is that they are they are actually taking part in a gift economy. And what they're using is their, of course, their income from the private se sector. But in other words, what we have is a mixed economy. We have the state, we have the market, and then we have a kind of altruistic gift economy that I am incredibly excited about. Sure. And I would like to see develop more. Uh, no, no argument there at all. But 
Um, you characterize privatization as this gift that the government go- mm. gives, I guess, to a bunch of oligarchs. I think that's what happens when it's done really, really poorly. Mm. For example, when the government auctions off wireless spectrum, yep. that can actually be a great way to increase government revenues and free up those resources for productive use. When we were listening to Bill Curry, he talked about private. He talked about deregulation, a uh, deregulation of four industries, and they were finance. Airlines, trucking, and communications. Okay, we probably deregulated finance a little bit too much and walked away too far from the Glass-Steagall Act. Does anyone want to go back to the era of bureaucrats setting airline routes and fares? The, our, our airline, trucking, and communications industries have flowered. They have exploded. They have improved our lives because they were deregulated. I, I think I, I would meet you halfway. I would say that the condition of deregulation allowed for more innovation than it than would have happened. If you think about the containerization of of world trade, I mean, the the, the, the labor unions opposed that in the, in the United Kingdom. I think that it, it came and it made world trade happen. So it, we, we can't go... I, I do sense it in, in, in the voices of some on the left of the Democrat Party a desire to go backwards, and I don't... I don't to the era backwards. of longshoremen who are offloading barrels by hand. It's, it's, know, again, it's a terrible we idea. Can't do that. We can't. We're instructed not to be nostalgic for, for that time, for even the mixed economy of Europe in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and somewhat in my life too, but I want to think about it also from the other end, from the, from the child's end, from the family's end. To know that you're growing up in a place where, you, where there are public guarantees in health, public transportation, and in education and higher education. We'll be back. When we're back, what's the chance of the, the digitized networking of global brain words and all sorts of combinations is changing us even deeper than our economics? I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source with the meta-journalist Paul Mason of Channel 4 Television and The Guardian newspaper in England. His book is Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future. Our American interlocutor from across the river is Andrew McAfee of MIT, close reader of Digitized Work Life in a big book of two years ago, The Second Machine Age. Fundamental question about the digital revolution. Is it, how, how big is it? Is it another clever turn like the telephone or the automobile, or is it a is it a world changer, even a human nature changer? You first, Paul. Well, I, I, I think it's as big as the inventing of the printing press. That is, it's a 500-year change in, in human uh, experience. Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, even in the 20 years since we discovered the idea of the network uh, being the machine that we're concerned about, not just computers, what, what the, 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 the rate of change has been enormous. Most drafts you see are exponential uh, falling off a cliff price falls of processing power, bandwidth, DNA sequencing follows the same Moore's Law kind of fall off a cliff. Uh, you don't need PowerPoint. You just need a hand gesture. That's, what, that's what's happening to, to the price of many things. But we're only at the beginning because we don't know... Uh, about what AI is going to bring, what, arti- uh, what artificial intelligence is going to bring. I'm told by some of the people close to the pe- people who did the de- deep mind, uh, uh, the AlphaGo thing, where, where, where it beat the, the, the Go grandmaster, that it, it really is an inflection point uh, of incredible uh, significance because we're, we're going from being able to automate processes that we designed mm-hmm. to asking a computer to design processes we could not design. 
We've liberated information, too, even from, from price in a fashion that's well, look, radical. The, the argument on my book, and it's not just me who argues this, the, the economist Paul Romer said this as early as 1990, is that, you know, if you, that, that the price of something that you can produce for free is going to be falling close to, to free. Um, and we have a whole bunch of monopolies created in that, in that time since then to try and stop prices falling to close to zero. I don't think they can survive. And this makes me very doomy about some parts of the tech sector, which are totally based on the, the harvesting of what we call externalities, the, the, the free stuff that the t- technology produces around us. I'm not sure that they can, those walled gardens of information uh, property can actually uh, persist. How big a transformation on a 500-year, 10-million-year scale, Andy McAfee? Chris, I was worried for the sake of your show that Paul and I were going to agree too much. And then at the end, I, he pulled it out. So let me talk about the deep agreement first. I'm completely with you. The, the transition that we're in the middle of is at the level of some combination of the printing press and the steam engine. This is a great big deal. And let me give you two reasons why I say that. Number one, just in the past few years, and we're going to finish the job over the next five to 10. We are going to interconnect for the very first time ever um, a huge majority of the world's population with each other. Right. We're going to interconnect them with a decent chunk of the world's accumulated knowledge resources, and we're going to give them the ability to contribute to that body of knowledge. This has not happened before. Nothing like this has happened before. Accessing and contributing to knowledge was the preserve of the very richest people in the world. That's just not true anymore. You have to be a huge pessimist about humanity not to find that a big deal. The other uh, place where I agree completely with Paul is the importance that we're seeing with these very new developments in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Because what I think is going on is for the first time ever, we have a global, let's call it a second opinion, where we can show a bunch of examples Mm -hmm. to these amazing technologies and we can essentially say to them, well, what do you think? What conclusions do you draw from this? And the conclusions they draw are powerful and valid and will help us understand our world better. All that is fantastic. Now, here's the fun part. Here's where I get to disagree with Paul again. He's, you're pessimistic about the ability of some of the great, the huge tech companies to maintain, I think you called them the walled gardens that they've built up, where they are profiting from the data that we give them. Um, and, and somehow that's not going to last. What I agree with is that the tech companies on top today are usually not the tech companies on top five or ten years now. Uh, what's going to bring them down? It's not the fact that they're ha- that they're harvesting or profiting from us in some um, unsustainable or unethical way. Companies have always rolled out f- for a long time, rolled out free stuff to people in exchange for being able to serve mm-hmm. ads to them. Mm-hmm. What's going on with Google and Facebook and Twitter is 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 a new chapter in that story. Mm-hmm. It's not a different story. You, you haven't mentioned the other part of the news. Um, not only does all the human race have access to all the learning of all time, uh, half the workers are going to be told, uh, you can go home now and you don't need to come back. And the reason that Eric and I wrote The Second Machine Age, one of the main reasons, and one of the things that Paul has latched onto in a very clever way, is this pressure, again, right there in the middle of the classic American middle class. And again, that's mm. due to what I, I believe it's primarily due to trade and technological progress. And that needs to be the focus of our policy solutions to see if we can get, uh, get the free market environment right. 
to let the genius of capitalism do mm. what it's done for two centuries, which, in my view, is the opposite of oppressing the working class. It is steadily raise the wages, the standards of living, and the opportunities available to people. I want to throw out an even grander <laughs> hypothesis about the change here. When I was just out of college, I read a Jesuit paleontologist, Teilhard de Chardin, Phenomenon of Man. His vision was of a coming, he called it noosphere, the Greek word for a a, a knowledge sphere Mm. in which there would be a continuous conversation in the world around about everything. And now we know exactly what he meant. But he thought, he called it uh, an evolutionary change. This is an mm. Orthodox Catholic, yeah. and you hear echoes of him in in the mm. Pope yep. Francis today. But he was talking about, as he said, the beginning of a new age. The Earth gets a new skin. He wrote, "Better still, it finds its soul." What is the chance <laughs> of something infinitely grander than what we're talking about? Hundred years before Teilhard de Chardin, another uh, big thinker thought exactly the same thought, and it was <laughs> Marx. Uh, th- there is this little-known piece of Marx, the Fragment on Machines. It's a great title, even uh, uh, one of his notebooks, where, uh, contrary to his his well-known collapse anomics for capitalism, which is all about <laughs> falling rates of profit, Marx imagined what would happen if knowledge became, uh, as he described it, social and embodied in what yes. he called a general intellect. And and this is where I, this is where in other words the source of of my you know unorthodox techno utopian leftism comes from, <laughs> and this is what it is: is I believe what Marx believed that that when knowledge becomes social, the private property form of business cannot deal with it, um, and and the, the and that the data should be ours, and that the, and that business models need to adapt to to the fact that it is ours. Now, we we I think. We're talking about the, you talked earlier, Andy, about the the, uh, the people's uh, access to knowledge. I think that's doing something to to, to human beings. Yes, the, the, you will notice the people, maybe the students around you. The, I've noticed the way people learn now. They upload knowledge. Uh, that is kind of pre-processed, they utilize it with their brain, and then once it's used, they will download it. You don't need to spend a lifetime uh, b- b- learning specific uh, uh, expert elements of expertise. Now, I think this will create a, almost like a meta-intelligence among human beings. When we start yes. actually interacting with the intelligent machines, that's going to develop even okay. even quicker, I think. So human life is being change I think as radically as the printing press changed our ways of thinking. When the printing press came along, we suddenly had checkable knowledge. All yes. the maps became the same. But 100 years before the printing press, all the maps were different. <laughs> true, true. Andy, what about this? What about specifically, oh, oh, in the meantime, a world without work? We t- talked about this with Ray Kurzweil a year ago. Uh, what do we do with the people who, who don't have an office to go to anymore? What do they do with themselves? And also, how do we sustain the race in the style to which it's become accustomed? And, and my biggest worry is exactly this, because we're getting decent evidence about what happens to people and families and communities when work, when this good old-fashioned industrial era conception of work yes. goes away, and the news is deeply not good. We see in communities where work goes away, rates of marriage going down. We see crime going up. We see single parent homes going up. The scariest evidence that I saw was published last year by Angus Deaton and Susan Case, who documented that among um, middle-aged white Americans with 
less than a, with high school education or less. Mm-hmm. In other words, the most likely people to be unemployed. Their mortality rates, their death rates are actually at best holding steady and probably slowly increasing over the past generation for three reasons. Because of chronic liver poisoning like cirrhosis, mm-hmm. because of suicide, and because of acute alcohol and drug poisoning. These people are killing themselves. This was not the case back in that kind of you know uh, Eisenhower era mm-hmm. conception of the stable middle class. I, th- I, I think the, a big part of the reason why is that when the, when the structures and stability and dignity of work go away, some pretty unpleasant things take their place. It's not all burning man all the time. And you can hear the, in, in that roar in Indianapolis, you can hear the dread. It's not just the paycheck. It's, I completely agree. Paul Mason, what do we do? Well, I th- see, I'm in favor of rapidly automating the world. I think the less work we do, the better. And for me, as a, as a you know, I come from a, one of those communities in yeah. a mining and coal and cotton producing communities. I'm very sad that it's gone. And what it did to my community was terrible. Mm-hmm. But I, I know it's not coming back. And I think the, the leftism of the 21st century has to be a utopia that is no longer based on work. So for me, mm-hmm. it is about what, how do we change society so that we can automate those 47% of US jobs that could be automated in a way that's socially beneficial. And one of the key things we're going to have to do, it's an unproven social technology, and we need to start, and I know you, you've, you've written about this too, uh, is, is the basic income. I think there is a, uh, I know why Silicon Valley wants a basic income. Mm. It's so that the Uber drivers have some money to buy the Uber car with uh, <laughs> because they ain't going to be earning it working for Uber. Uh, but, but my version of it is that we, do, we use it as a one-time uh, subsidy for the automation of the world. And this time we make automation actually cut the working day. And, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're doing experiments with it in Europe, in the city of Utrecht and in Norway. We're also seeing Sweden, well, Sweden with the basic income. That is, you uh, get money from, from the state, whether you, whether you look for work or not, whether you're feckless and uh, undeserving or not. Um, we're also seeing the cuts to the working day. Sweden cut the working day to six hours. Let me give you another and great... Stunned mm-hmm. silence. Why doesn't America do that? <laughs> uh, because I, I don't want my government mandating my work hours. I don't want my government mandating anybody else's work hours. Let me give you another uh, interesting data point also from Europe. I believe that more than half of Dutch women now work at part-time-ish, many fewer than 40 hours a week. That is not because of, of a government mandate. Mm-hmm. That's because they have enough flexibility mm-hmm. to allow people to make that choice. And again, the social safety net is, is, is good in Holland in a lot of ways. Yeah. But a lot of their workers have said, I can have the standard of living I want, yeah. working 20, 25-ish hours a week, and I'm going to go do other things with the rest of my life. That's fantastic. Those 20, 25 hours, to my mind, are still really very, very important. Uh, I, Paul, I don't think that we are deliberately retarding the rate at which we are trying to automate work or the, the rate at which we're trying to advance technology. I think some vested interests are trying to slow mm. that down. In general, I think tech progress is proceeding at a, at a dizzying rate. No, me too. I, I'm not saying that the, 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 the old monopoly story in the, Roosevelt, the Teddy Roosevelt era was that monopolies uh, retard uh, innovation. I don't think that's so true. They can buy up innovative companies, and that's not so great. Um, but I think it's, it's the, it's, it, it, you, you need to be able to tell people a story of what society is going to be like if these intelligent machines, learning machines, and, uh, you know, free machines that last forever, basically, <laughs> which is what we, we already have, um, are allowed to do the work. And, 
And therefore, if it's not a basic income, that it could be the state as the employer of last resort, one way or another, we're going to have to explain to people it, how they live, uh, how they live, how they educate themselves. Uh, and I, I think this needs a much bigger change, even than the one that Sanders is proposing. I think it, you know, I'm glad that Sanders is laser focused on e- economics, and I think that it, Clinton's non-focus on economics very telling. It means that you know the story is the same old story of the banks, the the elite. But but even Sanders, I think, has to get with the program that there is a technological route to to human greatness, to use a kind of Randian term, that the, the left has to get on board and understand and come up, with, come up with concrete solutions to make it enactable. Speak to Bill Curry's point, both of you, that the worst thing about the economic distortion is that it stole our politics, that it bought the Congress. It, it would have bought the presidential contest if it could have. Um, how do we get it back? Or, in fact, are we getting it back in this unbelievably... Uh, surprising year of of the upsets yeah if if the powers that be could buy the political parties and own the establishment we would not have a donald trump candidacy that just Mm. does not make any sense to me but I, i can't speak with any expertise to whether or not politics are being bought more than they were a a generation or two ago. What we can say, the evidence is pretty clear, that for whatever set of reasons, the polarization between the two parties in America is at at fairly historic highs. And that is deeply disturbing for the simple reason that we can't get together and get anything done, even in areas where a large majority of the American people agree that that this, you know, over here, this is the right answer. My favorite example there is immigration reform. Most American people Mm -hmm. want it. We're not anywhere close to it. It would be a huge boost to our economy when a decent chunk of the world's most talented and ambitious people want to come here to build their lives and their careers and we make it Kafka-esque difficult for them. I I think our enemies designed our immigration policies. What is the techno-utopian's remedy for inequality that has become scandalous Mm -hmm. in this country? Well, to me, it is it is well, really. Some some of it's really a no-brainer. Some of it is the social democratic answers you can you can buy off the shelf from Europe. I know you you don't like it, Andy, but you know, the fact is, for, you know, let's not even. I mean, let, you know, we we have some highly highly unequal societies in Europe as well. But in the end of the day, um, you, less than you. Uh, we don't have cities that look like Detroit or Gary, Indiana yet. Um, so some of it is having a, a, a welfare safety net that is paid for out of taxation. You force Silicon Valley to pay its taxes. You force um, some of these uh, offshore. You know, the what 35... do you do about Panama before we're done? What do we do about Panama? Well, I think we're we're going to do it. I mean, I think there's not even functional, is it? You, you, it, it may cost uh, your prime minister his job, but what about us? I mean, we're still waiting for that shoe to drop about the American treasure. We, we've we, we've we've got to bring offshore wealth onshore. And it's actually really easy. It's all been designed. It's just not being executed. It's uh, another example where the, where the partisanship is getting in, our, in the way of doing some fairly sensible things. And so I, I'm with Paul on this. In addition, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Yeah. The more we learn about these huge pools of wealth that are just hiding from visibility and taxation, the more momentum we'll build to do something about it. Do we want to even think about why we considered it legal all this time? To ship money out of the tax zone into the Bahamas or whatever? 
I, I can't talk about that with any real expertise well, well, be, be, beyond amazement. I've been covering it for my entire life. <laughs> life and and it, I think it is this, is that we presume everything we don't know about and everything that is not regulated is legal. And, and, and I'm afraid it does come back to saying the state can design the system. And I think it has to, the finance system. That's our time. Thank you, Paul Mason. Thank you, Andy McAfee. Thanks also to Bill Curry and Tom Frank. Thanks to our new listeners on Stitcher. Please rate the show. Please add us to your favorites and get in touch with us anytime on Facebook, Twitter, or at our face, uh, on our website, radioopensource.org. Our show this week was produced by Max Larkin, Connor Gillies, Zach Goldhammer, and Abby Duker. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our executive producer. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time on Open Source. <laughs>